0: Hey, good morning, everyone. How are you guys doing? Let's go ahead and stand up. We're going to worship the Lord this morning. My name is Caton Garcia. I'm a friend of Eric's. I know him from Trellis, um, and I work at Trellis as a director of one of their initiatives there. Um, I go to Genesis Costa Mesa. We used to meet here in the evenings, actually. Um, we're so happy that you guys let us um, be in this space for a while uh, and we just moved over to where the camp is. But one of the things that I love about what I do and about the expression of sharing buildings together is that we're all one family and we're united with the Lord and we're united in what he's done on the cross. I don't just say that, um, you know, out of tradition or empty words, but I really mean that. Um, and I want to invite you guys into that reality as well. Um, the song we're going to sing is called At, At Your Name. And the chorus says, Lord of all the earth, we shout your name, shout your name, filling up the skies with endless praise. Yahweh, Yahweh, we love to shout your name. I think we can come into a Sunday and we'll just start singing. We don't even realize the weight and the gravity and even the beauty of the words that we're singing. Um, So actually, even before we just start, I just want to kind of sing this as a family, just together.
1: Lord of all the earth, we shout your name, shout your... Let's sing it. Filling up the skies with endless praise, this praise. Yahweh, Yahweh, we love to shout your name, oh
0: Lord. So now I just basically committed you guys to acting as if you actually love to shout his name. So, um, we're going to start the song, but I really just want to invite you guys into a really deep, beautiful, passionate um, worship time this morning because the Lord deserves it from us. And we've already said it that we love to shout his name, so now we've got to show him that we do. Um, let's do it together.
1: Lord of all the earth.
2: I was so caught up in worship, I totally forgot that. Uh, yeah, you guys can go ahead and grab a seat, but bef- actually, while you're doing it, let me just go ahead and invite God. We've already been acknowledging His presence. He is the focus of this morning. It's not us. Yeah, Glenn, you can totally sit down. Um, I just want to pray. I want to pray because I, I recognize right now, um, just as I look at my own staff how much stuff is going on in their lives. And I I would extrapolate that out to our church community and recognize you've probably carried a lot of stuff in as well. And our tendency is to focus on that and let that be the overwhelming kind of thing that we see as we walk into this place. And so this morning, as Caden and the, the worship team have kind of led us into this new posture of flipping our perspective around, think of that... The the kids right now have my telescope across the street because they're learning the same thing we've been learning. But think of that telescope for a second. You got the big lens and the little lens. The big lens, those are our circumstances. The little lens, that's our spiritual worldview. And our tendency as human beings, when life kind of hits us, is to start looking at the world through the big lens of our circumstances. And when we do that... God seems really, really small, and our circumstances seem really, really big, and our world feels myopic. All we can see is the circumstance right in front of us, and we're here this morning, and we're going through Revelation in part to remind ourselves to flip that thing around and look at our circumstances through the lens of our awesome, holy God, and when we do that, everything changes. And so... As we come in this morning, let me just go ahead and begin by inviting the Holy Spirit to guide our time and to set our hearts so that we can receive what he has for us. If you bow your heads with me. Father God, we acknowledge that this time is about you, not about me, not about the band, not about any of us. It is about you. You are God in heaven. And here we are, your sons and your daughters fashioned in your image, loved more deeply than we could ever possibly fathom, and as we enter into this time this morning, God, we recognize we've carried things with us, things we're worried about, things we're angry about, things that are dominating our, have been dominating our thought life throughout the week, and as an act of worship, we want to lay them at your feet and recognize that you are God and we are not. I pray that you would guide my words. I pray that you would be with my brothers and my sisters who are not well enough to be here this morning in person. Maybe they're watching at home, and I pray, Holy Spirit, you would pervade their homes just like I believe you have have filled this space with your presence. We have not come here to learn more about you. We have come here to have an encounter with you that we would leave different. Not because we, can, we have to be in this building to meet you. You're everywhere with us. Holy Spirit, we carry you with us. We are the temples. This is not, this is just a box where the church gathers. But as we have gathered together as family, as your sons and your daughters, we pray that we would have a fresh encounter with you and it would leave us changed. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. If you've got a Bible, and Ethan, would you throw me my water, please? I know, I'm asking you to throw something at me. This is dangerous. Thank you, son. Um, i played water polo. Come on, expect more from me. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. We are, are, We have been slowly at this point, it's going to speed up rapidly next week, but we have been slowly working through the letter that John wrote to seven churches scattered around Asia Minor, churches that he had a a deep heart for because they were churches he had invested in. He writes this letter because God has impressed upon his heart a, a, a message of hope to people who are feeling pretty darn hopeless because the world and the powers that be were pressing in around them. And so it begins with this perspective of, of, of seven lampstands, seven churches, and Jesus standing in the midst of those churches, a reminder that he's not far off, he's not distant, he is present with them right there. And then it switches to Jesus giving a message to each of those seven churches with both encouragement, I know you and I know what you're going through, but also for five of those seven churches, some discipline. Because what good father does not discipline his children, right? He doesn't discipline punitively. He disciplines to help grow. Like what, you know, what father doesn't discipline his children, but the reason God disciplines us is for our own well-being that we might be trained up by it. For as we learn from that discipline, our hope, our perspective, and our posture will change. And so that's what what God does through these messages to the seven churches, is he reminds them to keep their eyes fixed on him rather than on their circumstances, to worship him rather than the the so-called king of kings and lord of lords, Caesar Domitian. For them, it might be somebody else for us. To not get fixated on the, the, the momentary circumstances of the day. For them, it was what was going on socially. For us, it might be war that is fomenting in the Ukraine and Russia and possibly World War III and all of these kind of things and COVID, things that could easily distract us. And he says, keep your eyes fixed on me. These things too shall pass. And then out of that, last week, after those seven messages, we turned our eyes to the throne room of heaven as, as John is invited to step into heaven. And not just into heaven proper, not into streets of gold and pearly gates and all of those kind of things. We'll get to that. We get to step into the holy of holies, into the throne room, which is the control center of all of creation. And we know this because at its center is a throne. And there's one who sits on the throne and he has been sitting on that throne since before we ever started Paying attention to time before time began, and he will be sitting on that throne when everything is wrapped up. And even right now, in the midst of the messiness of our world, he is sitting on that throne. It is not up for grabs. It is not something that somebody can wrestle away from him if they can just cobble together a, a stronger army to take it. He has been and he will continue to be sitting upon that throne. He is in control. And around that throne are four. Living creatures or angels that day and night are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy. Again, in Greek, you don't have italics or uppercase, lowercase. You don't have a way to emphasize something through the font. So if you want to make sure people get that it's important, you simply repeat it. And what do they want us to remember? That our God is holy. He is holy other. He is different from the rest of creation. He is different from every other leader you have ever encountered. He is different than that so-called pantheon of gods that the Romans worship. He is wholly different and wholly better. And when they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, there are 24 other smaller thrones Seated upon them are 24 elders or representatives of people. As we talked about last week, it pro- those 24 elders probably represent all of the people of God throughout history. Both Old Covenant and New Covenant represented 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples, and they represent us. And whenever those elders, Hear the angels crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They take off their golden crowns that are the symbol of their authority. They lay them down and they bow down to the one who sits on the throne and they begin to worship him just as we have done. Guys, as we started to sing songs this morning, it's not like we started worshiping. Worship has been resounding, echoing throughout eternity we simply join in that worship service that is going on even right now in the Holy of Holies. And that's where we ended last week was with this focus of the one who sits upon the throne, our Father, God. But the worship service isn't over. It continues on into chapter 5, and so today as we pick up, understand we're stepping in midstream, mid-worship service. It's like you came a little late because you were having a hard time getting your kids or your sweetie in the car, and maybe you got stopped on the way here because you had to get coffee or something, and so you've walked in mid-message, and you're trying to find your footing. So if you missed last week, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to that message because everything I'm going to say today is building off of that foundation, if, if you're new to Lighthouse and you don't know where to find it, you just go to our, our website, lighthousecommunity.com, and there's a link to our past messages. Go back and listen to last week's. It's well worth your time, even if I'm the one who is speaking. It's still worth your time because I'm speaking out of God's Word. That's why it's worth it. Now, Revelation chapter 5. Let's continue this worship service. Then... I saw in the right hand of him who sat upon the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? That was my most angelic voice. It probably didn't do it justice. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I, this is John speaking, wept. And wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Don't weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit of God sent into all the earth. He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Remember last week I mentioned that your prayers are like incense to the Father. They are a sweet aroma to Him. Here is where we get confirmation of that. When you pray, it is an act of worship, of entrusting to Him your heart. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God people from every tribe and language. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand upon ten thousand. They circled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell face down and they worshiped. There's a lot here and we're going to work through each kind of verse. We're going to kind of unpack it a little bit. But what I hope you notice right at the outset is that the focus is shifting. It has been, in chapter 4, fully focused on the one who sits upon the throne. And this is all John's perspective. He is seeing this vision. He is physically there. He's not making this up. This is a vision that God allows him to see because in the revelation or the apocalypse of Jesus, apocalypse doesn't mean destruction. It's not like how we normally use it in the 21st century. An apocalypse simply means an unveiling or a revealing of what really is. So for John and for us, what Revelation 4 and 5 does is it pulls back the curtain of our reality of what we can see to show us who is really in control and what is really going on. And as we begin chapter 5, the focus shifts just from the throne to the right hand of the one who sits upon the throne. And when he looks he sees a scroll. Let's actually read that. I saw in the right hand of him who sat upon the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now, what on earth is this scroll? What what does it say? What's in it? Well, this isn't the first time that when somebody sees God in his throne room, they see a scroll in his hand. In fact, In the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, there is a moment where Daniel is given a vision of how the end times play out. And he begins to write down what happens. And then God says this to him. Can we throw it up on the screen? God says this to him in Daniel chapter 12. Roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. In other words, it is not time for you to tell everybody what's in the scroll. That will be reserved Until the end times, or until it is time for the end times to be wrapped up. And I will remind you, for those of you who are just kind of jumping midstream of this conversation through Revelation, we are very much in the end times. And that is not simply because of COVID, and not simply because of all of the unrest in America in the last couple of years, and not simply because of what's going on in Russia and the Ukraine We have been in the end times since the moment that Jesus came to earth, took on flesh, walked to the cross. That was his first coming, and that was the beginning of the end, and it will be culminated with his second coming. If you want to use historical terms, it's like D-Day, first coming, V-Day, this is from World War II. The, the day that the world war is finally ending, that is his second coming, and we are people who live in between, in the in-between times. We live in enemy-occupied territory, just like all those men and women who lived in enemy-occupied Europe. After D-Day, as the Allied forces began to roll up Hitler's powerful army and take back ground that he had conquered, but we live in enemy-occupied territory waiting for our V-Day to come. We are in the end times and we have been in the end times for the last 2,000 years. But in this scroll that Daniel saw is written how it's going to play out. And he was told to seal it up. And that plan, how things are going to end, how God is going to culminate the redemption of humanity and, re- and fully redeem and restore his image bearers, how he's going to deal with evil and sin once and for all. All of that's written in there. How he's going to bring about the restoration of his creation because we're going to spend eternity here on this planet. But it's got to be restored first. All of that is written in the scroll. And then it's sealed up with seven seals. And I will remind you, because we're going to come across this number a lot of times. In apocalyptic literature, the number seven is very symbolic. It's symbolic of completion. It's not seven spirits of God. It's the sevenfold spirit. And it, the seven seals means it is good and truly sealed. It is, it is sealed up good and tight. Wouldn't you want to know? Do you want to know what's in that scroll? Do you want to know how this all plays out? I do too. And apparently so does John. We read in in verse 2, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Who's worthy? And by the way, just so you know, the act of breaking the seals and opening the scroll is not just so we can get information. It's not just so we can have the head knowledge of what's written in there. The one who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll is also the one who is capable of bringing God's plan for his creation to completion. I have to admit, the very fact that there is a plan in the hands of our God means he's in more control than it seems at times. Because doesn't it seem at times like no one's in control, that the world is just kind of spinning off its axis and there's no one at the wheel? does to me sometimes. But the fact that he has a plan and it's in his hand means that he is sovereignly still in control of how the world plays out. And the angel says, who is worthy to open the scroll and to allow God's will to be carried out? Who can bring it through to completion? Verse three, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept and wept. You want to to emphasize a word? You repeat it. He was weeping bitterly because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Then the one of the elders said to me, Don't weep. See, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. The Lion of Judah... The root of David, both of those are messianic titles. Both of those are pulled from the Old Testament and they are declaring that the one whom God has prophesied will come, that will be his anointed redeemer, he, the Lion of Judah, the root of David, the one who's going to fully and finally establish David's kingdom that God promised would would always kind of exists throughout eternity. He is worthy. He is capable of opening the scroll. So John looks to see where is the lion. I want to see Aslan. I think that's such a beautiful picture C.S. Lewis has given us because there's something regal about a lion, particularly one like Aslan, who knows what he's about. He is powerful His presence, he's beautiful, but he's also intimidating because his presence, you recognize there's something deeper and more powerful than, than you are. So he looks to see the Lion of Judah. But what does he see? Then I saw a lamb. He looks to see Aslan and in its place is a lamb. Now that in itself is a very, very strong Kind of jarring juxtaposition of words. You go looking for the lion and you see a lamb. It's like you you reach for Coke and you get Dr Pepper. It's like ah, I wasn't ready for that. Or or you go reaching for Coke and you get iced tea. Like it's it's jarring because you're expecting something different. But the language, the language that John uses to describe this is even more jarring, because it's not just a lamb. There's two different words he could have chosen to describe this lamb. The first one is amnon. Amnon is a word that John the Baptist uses when he's talking about, oh look, the the lamb of God that comes to take away the sins of the world. That's the word, or amnos, is the word that he uses. And that means a young lamb, anything less than a full-grown sheep. But that's not the word that John uses. Because there's another word, arneon. That word refers to an infant lamb, a little lamb. It's as different as calling a a, a little boy or a little girl a child versus an infant. You know that those two words carry very different connotations, right? In the same way, when John turns and sees this lamb, he uses Arneon, in other words, suggesting this is the youngest, most seemingly powerless Lamb you could see. This is not just a lamb. This is a little lamb. It's Mary's little lamb. Whose fleece was not white as snow, as we will find out. Then I saw a little lamb looking as if it had been slain. Again, this, this language, this picture that we get is jarring. Because this little lamb isn't dewy and soft and beautiful that you want to cuddle it. It is covered in blood, dripping in blood. And this is where we come face to face with the fact that the way that our God does things is very different from how we might do things. Because John goes looking for a powerful, mighty, conquering lion, and he sees a little seemingly powerless lamb that is dripping in its own lifeblood. A lion conquers by destroying, by killing its enemies. The lamb, it overcame by its own death. A lion you would expect to be covered in the blood of his enemies. This lamb is covered in his own lifeblood. He has been murdered, and we know why. He's been murdered to deal with sin once and for all because the enemy That the lamb who is the lion came to conquer is not Rome, is not Caesar, is not Russia, is not COVID, is not a political party that you don't align with. The enemy that the lion of the tribe of Judah that is also the lamb of God came to overcome is sin and death. The sin that separates us from our God. And the death that is the result of our own rebelliousness, that's what he came to deal with once and for all. And rather than dealing with it by destroying evil, he deals with it by going to the cross. I love the way that Paul articulates the power of the cross and the unexpected redemptive purpose of the cross in Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charges of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and the authorities, in other words, not just the political powers and authorities, like they're not the human beings. We're talking about spiritual powers and authorities, the principalities, the ones that stand in opposition to us and, and work through petty world leaders who come and go. But these powers have stood in opposition to God for a really, really long time. And having disarmed those powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. When people looked at Jesus on the cross, they mocked him because they thought it was a show of God's weakness. It was a a proof that he was not nearly as powerful as he purported to be. Satan, when he convinced the Jews to condemn Jesus rather than embracing him as their Messiah, Satan thought the cross would be his greatest victory, and it turned out to be the nail in the coffin. That... Is Jesus, that is a tangible reminder that Jesus has conquered Satan, even though it's not complete. That was Jesus' D-Day, the day that he got the foothold and he basically won the war, even though we have not yet reached V-Day and we still have an enemy that's trying to wreak havoc on our lives. And I understand that for many people, particularly people who don't accept that Jesus is the Lord and that Jesus came from God, many people look at the cross and they laugh. They go, that is the stupidest thing I have ever heard. I can get behind a God who's all-powerful and so he can conquer other gods. I like the God who uses 10 plagues to break the most powerful world leader and lead his people out in a show of power, but I don't understand a God who's willing to take on flesh and die for us. And Paul recognized this, by the way, in in 1 Corinthians. Can we throw that up for a moment? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says this. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's foolish. A God who would die for a mere mortal sins that's stupid. But to us who are being saved, it is a reminder of the power of God. The cross, when you look at that, is a reminder of just how deeply our Father loves us. The lengths to which he will go. Guys, I cannot overemphasize the importance of us recognizing. John turns to look for Aslan, and he sees a little lamb dripping in its own lifeblood that looks like it's just been slaughtered. And I'm sure he was a little bit weirded out by it but we haven't gotten to even the weirdest stuff yet. Let's keep going. I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Where is the lamb? Where's it at? The center of the throne, not next to the throne, not in front of the throne, not near the throne, at the center of the throne. I read that the first time and I went, wait a minute. There's somebody already on the throne. God the Father's already on the throne. How can he be at the center of the throne? And then I remembered, oh, wait a minute. Jesus is God. He came from God. And in fact, it reminds me of another verse that John also penned, the very first verse of his gospel when he said, in the beginning was the word, the divine power that, through which God spoke the world into existence, that Word was with God, and He was God. And he goes on to say that everything that's been created was created through Him, and that that Word, the divine power through which God spoke the world into existence, took on flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus, the Word of God is not just with God. He is God. He is divine. And this is one of those times where we are subtly reminded that he is more than just a mere human being that did a really good job of following God and obeying him even to the point of dying on the cross. So therefore God said, I'm, gonna, I'm going to elevate you and I'm going to give you the title of Messiah. I knew somebody would do it and you finally did it. That's not the message of the Bible. Jesus was not just a human being that lived a good life for us to try to emulate. Jesus was and is and will forever be part of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He came from God, He is God. And although He emptied Himself of His divinity, His his ability to know all things, He kind of took off his power so that he could enter and become fully human so that he could endure what we have been enduring so he can be a good high priest who can empathize with our weakness because he experienced it too. That's actually really comforting to me because he's not somebody who, who, who can't understand our faults and our failures. He, he, can't, he, can, he understands what it feels like to be weak and to be heartbroken because he experienced it himself. That's comforting to me because I have a high priest that is safe to come and bring my own brokenness to because he understands it. He's felt it himself. So we have the Father and if we have the Son. But there's a third part of the Trinity and we're about to see that he's part of this too. <clears throat> I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had seven horns. And seven eyes, which is the sevenfold spirit of God sent into all the earth. Now that would be a really weird looking lamb, wouldn't it? But you need to remember that in apocalyptic language, these word pictures are more symbolic. They're describing something deeper. The number seven, what is that symbolic of? You guys don't read the screen here, you're going to be cheating if you do. Horns were a symbol of power. So, if you have complete power, what does that mean? He's all powerful, right? This little lamb, this this teeny tiny infant lamb, is all powerful. He's more powerful than anything in all of creation, including the enemy that stands behind all things. The great dragon that we're going to be introduced to next week, he's more powerful than him, he's more powerful than Putin. He's more powerful than COVID. He's more powerful than cancer. He's more powerful than, than kidney failure. He is more powerful than anything that you're afraid of, including rejection, including loneliness, including depression. More powerful than that. And he has seven eyes, which we are told is the sevenfold spirit of God. So, remember, he, 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 when he took on flesh, he emptied himself of his divine godhood but the Holy Spirit anointed him, empowered him to know what was in a person's heart, to be able to heal people who were broken, to be able to cast out demons, to be able to walk on water, to be able to multiply bread. And ultimately the same Spirit that is available to you and to me empowered him to raise from the dead. And that same Spirit is available to you and to me to raise us from the dead. The deadness of our own sin and the deadness of our own Trusting our own self, and the Holy Spirit is available to us, and the Holy Spirit was upon Jesus. That spirit that empowered Jesus through his earthly ministry is present on him. And so now we get a picture on the throne of all three parts of the triune Godhead present together. And the focus of the worship service shifts. Verse 7. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat upon the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. All of the focus of chapter 4, the worship went solely to the Father. And now we're introduced to the Son who has the Holy Spirit upon him. And now the focus shifts to the Son. And the same worship that was given to the Father is given to the Son. Each of the elders had a harp. And they were holding golden bowls full of incense. Which are the prayers of God's people? I want to emphasize this again. I emphasized it last week. I emphasized it at the beginning. I want to reemphasize this. Your prayers are not a bother to our Father. Your prayers are a blessing. They are a fragrant offering to Him. Just like when my kids... Come to me and trust that their dad loves them enough so they say, Dad, can we? Dad, can you help me with? That's a blessing to me because it tells me that my kids love me and they trust me and they trust their relationship with me. When you cry out to the Father in the midst of your moment of weakness and you acknowledge, I need help, that blesses Him. Prayer's not a time to be good, it's a time to be honest. He knows what's in your heart, and He loves you more than you could possibly fathom. There are times I get irritated with my kids when they ask me for stuff, and they keep asking me for stuff. Our Father is infinitely more patient with us. Verse 9, and these four living creatures, the angels and the 24 elders sang a new song. It has to be a new song because there's a new revelation it's now not just the father, it's the father and the son and with the Holy Spirit, there present with him. And say, so they sing this new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Now, why is Jesus worthy? Why is the lamb that is slain worthy? Is it because he created all things by the power of his word? No, even though he did, and that's true, that's not why he's worthy to take the scroll and open it. Is it because he was raised from the dead and he conquered death? No, even though that is true, that is not the reason that he is worthy to take the scroll and open it. You are worthy to take the scroll and open it, Seals, because you were slain. Because he did not shrink from offering his life for our lives. Because he did not hesitate. Although there was a part of him that was terrified and he said, God, if there's any, Father, if there's any other way to do this, that doesn't demand that I suffer and die on a cross. Can we please go that way? But not my will, but yours be done. He submitted to the will of the Father and he faced the cross and he walked to it willingly and he accepted your sins and my sins. I think mine were worse than yours. I'm just saying, I'm not a pastor because I got it all together, I'm a pastor. Because I'm the first to acknowledge that I am a sinner desperately in need of a Savior. And I have a feeling I'm in pretty good company here. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God people from every tribe and language and people and nation. It is not just Jews that he came to save. It is not just Americans that he came to save. He came to save people. The artificial boundaries and borders that we create, the the dividing walls that we build, those are meaningless to our Father God and and our Savior. He died for men and women, image bearers, from every people group and every language. People in Russia and Ukraine, people in America and Canada and Mexico and South America and Africa and the Middle East. Not only have you made them a (coughs) king, I'm sorry, a little water. Santa Ana winds are harsh, aren't they? Earlier, I was like, maybe I should just hold back on singing and maybe my vo- so my vocal cords can last through the message. And I go, what on earth am I holding back for? He's God. He can give me more vocal cord time. So let's keep going. Nope. So not only have you purchased people from every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. This is, this is where when people say, well, what's the gospel message? I can point to a verse like this and remind us the gospel message is more than just Jesus died on the cross so that you don't have to die and you can have life eternal. That's part of the gospel and it is good news. But the other half of the gospel message is this. He died not only so prodigals can come home, but so that we can be restored back to the purpose for which we were created, namely to be ambassadors of the hope that we have found in our father's home. To be ambassadors of the good news. So, not only do you get to come home and he cleans you up, but he restores the purpose for which you were created to be his representative of hope to people who are perishing, people who are running full tilt towards a cliff and saying, I know where I'm going and I know what I'm doing and I'm a good person. And we get to be ambassadors of that hope that says, Yeah. You are desperately in need of a savior, and He says, "Turn around, repent, trust Me, and follow Me." So far, in, in the last two chapters, we have only kind of we've seen the throne, and then we had four creatures around it. So we're we're talking like concentric circles. You got the throne. And then you've got four creatures or four angels around it saying, holy, holy, holy. And then you've got 24 elders that are sitting on their thrones. But now we're going to add another concentric circle. Another group is going to join the worship service. Verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voices of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they are saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. These are words that are reserved for the father. And now they're being spoken to the son. He too is worthy of that worship. And then I heard, now the last concentric circle, and then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them. In other words, every living creature throughout history finds their voice and they say, to him who sits upon the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Like I said last week, we've covered a lot of territory. We've talked about interpretations of a lot of this stuff. And if you walk away from this morning merely having your intellect, titillated. If it's merely interesting to you, then I have done chapters 4 and chapter 5 of Revelation a monumental disservice because we have been invited into a worship service not to gawk at the one sitting on the throne and the lamb who is worthy to take the scroll. We have been invited into this worship service to join with the angels and with the elders and with the rest of creation in declaring Our worship, the rightful worship that belongs to the one on the throne and the one who took the throne through the cross, the one who redeemed us through his own death, the lion of the tribe of Judah that looks like a lamb that's been slain. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And we are going to join with the very words that all of creation sings to him who sits on the throne and under the lamb be all be all pr- praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever guys as we join with them if you feel the need to follow suit and fall on your knees there's space up here You can get out in the aisles. If you want to just stand up, you can do that. If you want to, wherever you are, however your body posture, sometimes our hearts follow our body posture. So if you want to kneel, you do it. You want to raise your hands, you do it. If you just want to sit there in awe of the one who loved you so much that he gave his life so that you could have yours, then do it. But let's worship together. Dude Every single time I sang that, I think I inverted the words and kept saying it wrong. And I realized halfway through it, it doesn't matter. It's not like he's listening to the words so much as he's listening to our hearts. And I want you to remind you of that because there's some of you who have been gifted with incredible voices. And some of you who haven't. And for those of you who haven't, you get gifted with the, uh, the opportunity to worship him without any shame worshiping Him wholeheartedly, even if it's off-key. He doesn't care because He's listening to your heart. And, and like I did last week, a, a message like this demands that I as a pastor remind you that I, I would imagine that there's somebody in here that's hearing my voice, that you've heard this. And for you, when you walked in, when you first hear the gospel message, you're one of those who it just sounds ridiculous to. You want to reject it. You want to laugh at it. You want to dismiss it. Because if he did die, well, he wouldn't die for somebody like you because you know there's lots of people who look like they've got it all together, but, but you know what you've done. And you would think to yourself, I'm not worthy. And you, you know what? You're absolutely right. You're not. And neither am I. And neither is Ann or D. Tony or Tom or Joyce, none of us is worthy. Like we could earn it. If we could earn it, then it would be the wages of good sin. But guess what the wages of our sin is? Death. That's what we deserve. That's what we have earned. That's what all of us deserve. But the gift of God is eternal life, being restored back into relationship with him and getting to co-labor alongside of him, worshiping him, not just with our words, but with our lives and our actions and the way we treat other people. And so this morning, I would be remiss if I did not offer to you a reminder that the gift of God is available to you. And it begins by simply saying, okay, I get it, I accept. I'm not good enough, I couldn't earn it, but I need you. Jesus, come into my life. Help yourself to my life. I accept the gift of grace that I could not possibly earn through all of my good behavior. There's nothing magical about a prayer, but a prayer is simply a starting point. It's not the finish line. Far too often we think of a prayer as the finish line. I punched my ticket to heaven. I'm good to go. I can live any way I want. No, it's the starting line to a lifetime of following Jesus and learning what it means to live out of his love and to reflect it. And like I did last week, and I said last week, every time I pray a prayer, it always sounds different, so don't hold me to it. it's going to be exactly the same way I prayed it last week. But it's something like this. Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I can't live without you. I've tried. I've failed. I need you to come into my life and clean house. I need you to heal the brokenness inside of me. I need you to be the Lord of my life and guide my steps because I've been stumbling in the darkness for far too long. So Jesus, I accept the gift of your grace. I choose to live out of your love. I know I can't earn it and so I'm grateful that you love me anymore. Jesus in your holy name. Amen. Again, nothing magical about it. If you pray, if you kind of repeated what I said, awesome. If you, you, if you say it a different way, awesome. He's not listening to the word so much as he's listening to your heart. And if you did pray that prayer or a different Rendition of that at some point, please let us know because we have an enemy who's going to come hard at you and try to distract you and deceive you and say, "Oh, you didn't do it right," or "Oh, you screwed up again." Yep, everything you you said before that's null and void now. Those are lies from the enemy. Lies straight from the pit of hell. And we want to, as your church family, to be able to walk with you and hold you up and encourage you and make sure you have community. We need one another. So that's one response. But for those of us who have tasted and seen that he is good, for those of us who look at the cross and know that it is good news and that our sins hung on that cross, not just other people's sins, but ours were dealt with once and for all, there is no better way to respond to that than to take communion. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So Glenn and Ann, I know you guys are over there. And Rich and Joyce, I know that you're there. And Bill and Kathy are going to be at the back table. We are going to take communion together. Bread and juice. Again, symbols. But I'm going to invite you to come and take them and grab them and bring them back to your seat. And we are going to take communion together as a family because this is a tangible symbol that Jesus gave to his disciples and to us to remember the gift of grace that he has so generously lavished upon us. So, as you are ready, if you guys are up in stairs, just come down the stairs. you got a table in the back. For the rest of us, let's come to the outsides and make two lines and come in and get the communion elements. And then we are going to take communion together in a few moments. Come on and get it. I have a a mentor of mine used to say, our God is a God of props. What he meant by that is uh, we have a God who loves to use tangible things to help his kids understand, kind of like when I'm trying to help my kids do counting. I will use actual pencils and say, what's two divided, or what's four divided by two? You break them in half. Or what's two times two? Break your pencils in half. Now you got four pieces, right? I I love breaking things, apparently, is what we just learned from that. Our God is a God of props, and so he uses tangible items to make sense of otherwise really difficult things to make sense of. And on the night that Jesus was arrested, he used what was in front of him. He was having a meal. It was the Passover meal. When we get closer to Easter, we're going to have a conversation about that specifically. Can't wait to have that one. But he took a piece of bread, and he said, this bread symbolizes my body. That is given for you. And every time you eat this bread. I want you to remember how deeply I loved you. That I was willing to give my body for yours. My life for yours. So let's eat together as family. Because he gave his body for us. And then he grabbed one of the cups, one of the Passover cups that would be passed. He said, this cup is the cup of a new covenant, a covenant that is being established in my blood. The old covenant had a lot of rules that a lot of people have turned into a stepladder that they try to climb into God's good graces. You can't do it. The rules were never put in place so that you could earn your standing with God. They were put in place to show you just how incapable you are of living the perfect life. Those rules were put in place to drive you to me. And now I am establishing a new covenant in my blood. Every time you drink this cup, I want you to remember that you're standing with our Father and you're standing with me is not determined by what you've done, but by what I have done. You are perfect, not because you've lived perfectly, because I have made you perfect through my blood. So let us drink this cup in remembrance of the one who gave his blood for us. Father God, we are so grateful that you love us and you don't give up on us. And Jesus, I am so thankful that you gave your life for us, giving us a way to be restored back into relationship with our Father and thus making you worthy to take the scroll and to open it and bring to culmination all that God has planned for his world, for his image bearers, and for the evil that is currently pervading our world. Jesus, we know that at some point you're gonna come and we simply sing, come Lord Jesus, come. And in the meantime, in this in-between time, help yourself to us as we take our eyes off of our circumstances and then we place them back onto you. Help yourself to us, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Let's continue worshiping together.
0: Let's not stand together. And sing.
2: I'm really grateful that we're family. I'm really grateful that because of what he's done for us, not because of what we've done, you and I and every person in here and every person in the 60 churches in Costa Mesa, I love having Kate in here as a reminder. Yeah. He'd be the first to say he doesn't want you to praise him he wants you to praise the one that he's been focused on too but I am so very very grateful that we are family because of what Jesus has done for us that's what we celebrate today that he has purchased people from every tribe and tongue from east side and west side from Costa Mesa Fountain Valley Santa Ana Huntington Beach Newport Beach And he's made very different people from very different walks of life family. And we get to worship him together. And now we get to go be the church together. He goes with us. He's not just here. The reason he was here is because you were here and I was here. But he wants to go with us. So you get to go be the church. So Lighthouse community, go be the church. Have a wonderful week. I love you very much. Have a great week. Oh, I I should mention, if you have prayer, prayer requests or praise reports or offering, you can drop it in the back. Have a wonderful week.